Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. My name is Dr. Dave O'Brien from Goldsmiths, the University of London. On this episode, I'm talking to Helena Gelfinkel, who is Associate Professor of English at Southern Illinois University. We'll be talking about her new book, Outlaw Fathers in Victorian and Modern British Literature, Queering Patriarchy, which was published in 2014 by Farley Dickinson University Press. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to Helena Garfinkel who is Associate Professor of English at Southern Illinois University. And we're going to be discussing her new book, uh, which was published in 2014 by Farley Dickinson University Press, which is called Outlaw Fathers in Victorian and Modern British Literature. Um, so welcome to, uh, to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much. Um, so I guess to kick off with it, it'd be really interesting um, to hear a bit about uh, your academic background, your, your interests and and something about the uh, the developments of the book and where the book has kind of come from. Well, I teach um, Victorian literature and critical theory at my university, and this is almost precisely my background. Um, this book, the genesis of this book, is on my doctoral dissertation at Tufts University, so this is a heavily revised um, dissertation. And I started, I first became interested in queer theory, in psychoanalytic theory, primarily in Lee Edelman's courses at Tufts University. So I was lucky uh, to be able to study with this great mind, um, a leading figure, really, in queer studies. And um, the first class I took with him was on psycholytic approaches um, to literature and subsequently on queer theory. And I um, started becoming interested in Freud. And I read around, I read first Freud, um, the Father and the Negative Oedipus Complex. I read Leonardo da Vinci and the Memory of His Childhood and read The Wolfman, uh, read The Child is Being Beaten and then started reading around Freud, people like Leo Bersani and um, Daniel Bjorn and Kaja Silverman. And uh, that was the genesis of the book. So I decided to work on fathers or queer fathers in literature, particularly focusing on this negative Oedipus um, narrative. And subsequently, I expanded and developed the dissertation. So Henry James is definitely a new addition. Patricia Powell is a new addition. Some of my media and pop culture discussions are definitely a new addition. So that's how it started, and that's where it got eventually. I, I suppose a good place to uh, to start with the book is... It is the kind of the key terms. So, outlaw father, or this idea of a of a queer patriarch. What what do you do? You sort of mean by those? And I, I guess could you do a bit of uh, scene setting by explaining those terms? I'm sure outlaw father is um, a pun, um, somewhat heavy handed Lacanian pun. Although this is not a heavily Lacanian book, um, I use the signification of the phallus. Um, in the conclusion, but not before that. So, Lacan's Law of the Father, this is the Outlaw Father, and um, queer patriarchy is, it's a set of relationships, um, I would say, 
first, um, this is the sort of a relationship between the father and the son that fits um, the uh, negative edible paradigm. So, and that anticipates a bit your question about uh, the role of Freud to this discussion, which, you know, really is fundamental. Um, so, straight patriarchy then follows um, the positive Oedipal narrative, where the relationship between the father and the son are based on um, competition, the fear of castration, um, whereas the negative Oedipal paradigm is the paradigm of love and submission, if you will. Um, and also the son in the negative paradigm assumes a sort of a feminized position and has a certain kind of stereotypical feminine characteristics. So love and submission in terms of the relationship between father and sons, um, the kind of masculinity that assumes stereotypically feminized positions, and also fathers and sons as not necessarily biological entities, I would say. Um, father figures are figures who are in some ways emotionally, financially, artistically um, influential, but not necessarily biological fathers, although I have those as well. Do, do you have a particular uh, definition of fatherhood in the text? Uh, one, one thing that comes up uh, really interestingly in, in the conclusion to the book is uh, the inclusion of uh, female to male trans people and some mm -hmm. of their experiences. Um, fatherhood, as I just said, fatherhood need not be um, biological. So we have, you know, relationships like biological fathers, patrons, um, artistic role models, um, or just influential older men. Um, in terms of the trans experience, um, I would say that I was particularly fascinated by the idea, um, and here in Patricia Powell's Pagoda, that the same person, the same being, can be simultaneously a father and a mother, which is precisely how it works out. And so I think that the kind of gender binaries that we're observing completely go out the window um, by the time we get to code into trans fathers' experiences. So there are multiple definitions of fatherhood, but I'm moving away from biology as much as I can. That move away from uh, biology to broaden out uh, your definition of fatherhood, I, th I think, is part of your your project of kind of uh, querying uh, patriarchy more more broadly and more generally. Um, and you talk about four reasons for this, some of which you've touched on around um, the identification between power and masculinity and um, the way uh, that we might need to locate. Uh, non-heterosexual relationships outside of patriarchy and how we might resist that and this um, range of unequal relationships between older and younger men. I, I wonder if you could tell me a bit about the kind of the purpose um, underpinning the uh, the act of queering patriarchy that the book attempts to do. Um, I think that, well, patriarchy is sort of the word, for one thing, that's the word that we throw around oftentimes mm -hmm. yeah. without thinking um, what it really means and stopping to give it a consideration. And, you know, if you think about it, we're in the midst of a very fundamental redefinition of male roles. And particularly, I think, you know, we have two things going on. Um, manhood and the status of a provider are not necessarily linked um, as inextricably as they used to be. 
particularly in today's economic conditions. And secondly, the definition of family um, has been changing and will be changing, I think, um, for a while. And so against the backdrop of these societal changes, we need to think about um, what patriarchy means given these changing conditions. In other words, we cannot say patriarchy in 2015 or, you know, 2014 when the book came out and still think of it in terms of the 1960s or 70s. Um, That, I think, is simply inaccurate. So that kind of a societal change was really fundamentally behind um, my attempt to queer patriarchy to think why the discussion of queer fatherhood is relevant now. And, of course, I uh, don't pretend, um, you know, to come up with a women-friendly patriarchy. Quite frankly, I don't think it's possible. But to think that some of the subjectivities um, that patriarchy supposedly opposes, like queer or, you know, female-identified or trans subjectivities, that it actually already includes, um, that is the move that I wanted to make. That's an idea that I wanted people to consider. It's interesting you mention the uh, problematic uh positions um, assigned to women within these um, queer patriarchal ideas. And, and I think you draw quite an interesting distinction between the idea of um, excluding women from, say, uh, the relationships um, or spaces of men rather than directly uh, oppressing them as a kind of um, a still problematic but different relationship uh, to women generated by queer patriarchy. Uh, yes, I, these are not... Uh, Well, I have two novels by women, by queer women, that I discuss at the end, but none of the texts that come before the conclusion are really, um, none of them are uh, women-friendly texts. None of them are women-inclusive texts. Um, None of them are gender-equality-oriented texts. So there is not much, I can say, in defense of say, Anthony Trollope and women, no. or even Alan Hollinghurst and women. And I think that, you know, that when it comes to Hollinghurst, he personally got the brunt of that critique as well. So, um, and I was being very careful, I think, in delineating my girl goals because I work in masculinity studies. And even though um, there's a great debt owed to feminist theory, this is not a book about women um, or about female authors. So... It's yeah, it's a bit problematic and remains that way. Um, the, the other, uh, I, I mean, you touched on this in, in the introduction. The, the other uh, major, I guess, female unfriendly uh, or problematic um, thing running through the text is the use of Freud, um, and um, I found this uh, kind of fascinating uh, deployment of, of Freud's theories because you very, um, you know, uh, you're very willing to engage with with extensive uh, kind of criticism of his work. And I just wonder if you could, um, yeah, thinking about what you mentioned at the start, maybe set the scene a little in terms of uh, the role of Freud in the book. Uh, For example, maybe say a little bit more about this negative Oedipus complex idea um, or perhaps why the case of the Wolfman is so important to the book. Uh, Well, while I'm willing to, uh, you know, concede that most of the uh, texts most of the literary texts in my book are not, you know, inclusive of women or not women-friendly. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say the same about Freud because I think, um, you know, he considers 
in-depth. I mean, it's not without problems, obviously, but he considers seriously and in-depth, you know, questions of female sexuality, um, questions of kind of gender positionality, and all the way through, starting from, you know, the three essays on the uh, theory of sexuality, he, he talks about sexuality's inherent kind of um, contingency and queerness and does away with the idea of what normal is, I would say. So I think that as a queer theory book, um, this side of Freud, the queer side of Freud, um, is something that was important to me. And I think that the case study of the Wolfman is particularly, um, I guess, indicative of the kind of uh, of Freud's inherent queerness because... It's an exploration of a supposedly heterosexual um, a man and the uh, non-heterosexual foundations of his desire and his sexuality. Um, the homoeroticism of this case study um, and the idea that sexuality or gender positionality are extremely fluid. All of it is in there. And if you read something like A Child is Being Beaten to um, the positioning of the beating adult and the beaten child and the gendering of this positioning is also extremely fluid. And so um, I think that his way of describing gender roles is very forward-thinking. I think that's uh, quite an interesting uh, moment you've picked up on, the, the idea of kind of deploying a queer Freud to read um, this different range of texts. And I, I'm, I'm interested in, in how you selected the texts, um, the kind of the process of... Um, choosing the authors, for example, um, Trollope takes up a whole chapter in the text, and obviously you've mentioned Hollinghurst, but Forster, Henry James um, as well. And then why the particular texts by these authors as well? Um, well, my favorite. Okay, so that's not a good answer, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> no, that's, that's and fine. <laughs> so I just, you know, I chose. Um, the writers that I liked, and of course that's not a terribly theoretical answer, I know that much, but um, I think that, um, well, and also don't forget J.R. Ackerley, who is not at all known mm. in the United States, very well known in okay. Great Britain. Um, so I chose texts that really uh, play with um, queer father-son relationship in all kinds of interesting ways, and they offer kind of a paradigm for each chapter, like um, the father-son marriage plot in Trollope, or the queer counselor man in the James Butler, and then the gay daddy in the Hollinghurst Forster chapter, and then the um, trans model of fatherhood in the conclusion. So they, you know, they offer particularly interesting paradigms for the explorations of queer patriarchy, and also I think, you know, their status, the status of this author within, author, of these authors within um, the canon, if you will, is sort of also on the margins um, in terms of their sexuality, with the exception perhaps of Trollope. I mean, he has his own marginality too. I mean, you know, he's a Victorian novelist, and I'm writing about Trollope in the field where most everyone writes about George Eliot or Dickens um, or the Brontes. So Trollope, like, say, Thackeray, is a fairly sort of marginal Victorian author himself, although his sexuality was by no means marginal or um, queer. Trollope is, you know, a bit of a developing small field, but there's not much in that. So queer authors and a bit marginalized, a bit on the margins of the canon, like, 
Samuel Butler in particular or like J.R. Ackerley about whom virtually no one is writing these days. The, um, the way you use all of these um, authors is part of that kind of broader uh, queering project, but you use them in different ways and pick up um, on different things. Um, and I think it, it might be good uh, to, to go through the different uses. So maybe if we begin, begin with Trollope um, and you choose two texts, Dr. Thorne and, and the Prime Minister, and mm. um, I'm interested how you think um, those kind of broader theoretical themes play out in these two texts. Um, but also maybe uh, we could think in, in particular terms as well, like um, the idea of the, the gentleman and Englishness and nationalism are really important as well as the kind of um, broader uh, queer theoretical positions that um, occupy the beginning of the book. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that the Trollope chapter sets the tone for um, kind of the narrative paradigms that I'm exploring later, but you're right about nationalism and the exploration of um, national identity and the idea of the whole, because I think that what I notice in particular in this long stretch of time between early-ish Trollope and kind of, and, and, and Hollinghurst's novel is the identification of queer patriarchy with particular narratives of English sort of agrarian, rural English um, nationalism and the identification of the positive Oedipus with um, cosmopolitanism, perhaps, and um, otherness, which seemed to me a reversal of the usual narrative where normative masculinity is nationalist and queer masculinity is cosmopolitan or othered. I noticed that paradigm being completely reversed um, through this entire stretch of about 150 years in the narratives of queer patriarchy. So you have um, Lopez and Scatcherd as the other um, in Trollope representing normative masculinity, and then you have um, the father and son who are English aristocrats representing queer patriarchy. And um, rural England... And you go all the way through Hollinghurst and you have kind of a set of queer English patriarchs living in the country and defying, you know, the advance of urban cosmopolitanism from London. Many years in between them, but the idea is still the same. And I found that fascinating. Hmm. Although shaped, uh, obviously, by different um, social contexts. Um, That's true. And and one of the things that I thought was interesting um, in your discussion of of Hollinghurst was that sense of um, the potential retreat away from uh, London and the city against the backdrop of um, the 1980s and the AIDS crisis. Yes. Um, which, which I found a really um, fascinating reading, actually, of um, an author who's become, you know, really kind of canonical for uh, English um, gay identity. Um, not to jump around sort of too much in, in the text, um, one of the things that you talk about in the uh, more theoretical discussion uh, early on in the book um, is the kind of the reversal of particular binaries such as those that are, say, to do with fathers and mothers as being split uh, binary positions. And I wonder, how do these play out in, in the Trollope texts? Um, they don't as much, I think, that um, the father-son marriage plot still is still built around or still based on 
fairly clear binaries. I think um, the breakdown of binaries happens closer to the end, both chronologically and the end of the book. I think that we're starting to look at the binaries collapsing, particularly in um, Forster's Little Ember, where we have this fantasy of all male reproduction um, and all kinds of binaries being collapsed when Ember and, you know, his older, and Warham, his older gentleman friend, are entering into this, you know, this strange relationships where one is weak and then the other is strong and one is maternal and the other is paternal. So that sort of is going back and forth um, in terms of gender roles and positioning. And that echoes very powerfully for me with Leah Bersani's The Gay Daddy, which is a critique of um, Freud's The Wolfman and talks about the collapse of binaries um, to which Freud is still holding on. And then um, binaries, of course, continue to collapse and I think um, reach that final um, destruction when it comes to trans characters. So um, when we're talking about trans fathers or trans patriarchs, which you know, sounds like an oxymoron already. We cannot talk about either, you know, any kind of gender binaries anymore. So we're starting with fairly traditional, um, you know, heteronormative texts, and we're moving into, that have some potential for queer and patriarchy, and are moving into what I see at least as um, a complete collapse of whatever gender binaries that were upholding the idea of patriarchy in the first place, or private and public sphere, or father and mother, something like that. And, and again, reflecting these, um, you know, broader social changes where, you know, in, in Trollope's time, there is the, you know, the kind of the policing of the heterosexual family units and, you know, ideas about respectable behavior and stuff like this and how this um, also changes um, over time. Um, although it's still there, actually, in, um, you know, in different ways in people like Forster and, and Hollinghurst, which, again, is, is an interesting um, line that runs through the text. Yes, they're still policing, absolutely. And Hollinghurst, certainly, I mean, you know, the domain of the gay daddy is very, very carefully policed. Probably not in the way we would expect, but uh, when it comes to kind of weeding out otherness or cosmopolitanism, there's a lot of heavy policing going on. Um, One of the things that I I guess you identify as the, if not the beginning of of this querying, but the um, part of the process of that comes in, in the third chapter's discussion of Samuel Butler, Henry James, and then and then Ackley's work. And this is where um, the idea of the negative Oedipus, I think, is, is really important. Um, and I wonder if you could tell me a bit about um, how you read those three authors through this idea. Well, I think, you know, I mean, we probably all have personal favourites, you know, in our books in terms of the idea, and I think that... Um, you know, this chapter in particular probably, um, you know, is my most important contribution of the idea of the queer consular Um So I look at the narrative of the artist, right, the consular Roman, as fundamentally a traditionally masculine kind of heteronormative um, narrative, which is also overlapping with the positive Oedipus of a man moving away from first and then identifying um, with as his father in order to pursue that artistic vocation. And so, you know, D.H. Lawrence and Joyce are the modernist writers who come to mind and whom I sort of base that idea of the heteronormative um, consular among the part of an artist, right? So um, what I see in Butler and James and in Ackerley 
is, and you know, roughly, I know that a lot of people will contest that kind of chronological positioning, but I will roughly um, characterize all of them as modernist writers. You know, modernism is notoriously difficult to uh, define or kind of, you know, feminine chronologically. And I'm taking advantage of that, and I'm defining all of them as modernists. So what they come up with is um, the queer consular among which overlaps with the negative ethical paradigm where um, in order to pursue an artistic vocation, um, the male artist, and again, you know, this is the male consular among and they kind of make a nod to the existence of female ones, but I don't talk at length about them. So that said, the male artist, um, in order to pursue his vocation, needs to submit or stay with the father. And that kind of a loving relationship, homosocial and or homoerotic relationship between a queer son and this father figure, not necessarily um, actually in new- well, accurately has a biological father, but that's but the other two don't. Um, that kind of a loving relationship with the father is the genesis of artistic creativity. So submission instead of separation, love instead of competition. Um, so this is what the queer consularman does in the final analysis. Sort of an anti-masculinist version of an artist's progress. And then the, the inversion of that, um, you know, Oedipal, uh, competitive, or, or murderous sort of, um, of, of narrative. Yes, inversion's a very good word to use, definitely. Um, what, one of the things um, that comes through, um, and again, we, we touched on this a little bit, uh, beyond um, just the kind of social changes in gender and, and, and family units and, and sexuality, are the, the material um, cultures that form the, the backdrop to all of these authors. And maybe that's something we, we might think about uh, when considering Chapter Four's discussion of uh, Foster and, and Hollinghurst, where mm-hmm. the material reality of the house, particularly the kitchen, um, becomes really important uh, mm-hmm. to the overall arguments of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Um, I You know, material culture research was really... In addition to it, wasn't anywhere in the dissertation. So um, I did some archival work and I did some print culture research, um, overly ambitiously, perhaps, you know, trying to connect this kind of Freudian, queer Freudian approach to um, material culture. And I guess in, in some respects it worked out okay. So um, the title of the chapter on Hollinghurst is The Father's Place is in the Kitchen, Dear, you know, which is obviously just camp um, on the part of the novel. But I think it also tells us something important about um, the kind of gender role, gender binary collapse that is going on. Um, the gay daddy feels comfortable in the kitchen. Um, so the idea of the gay daddy absorbs comfortably the idea of femininity hitherto on the margins. Um, hitherto, you know, abject. And uh, the novel itself is preoccupied with architecture, the architecture of the South of England in particular, and the main character, the gay daddy, is an architect. Um, And there's a lot of talk about, you know, various houses and a lot of descriptions of various houses. So I wanted to see how, in particular, um, the houses organized around gender roles. And it used to be that... Certain rules um, in the 19th century English house were very heavily kind of redistributed, you know, along the lines of gender roles, particularly the kitchen. Um, And so 
Hollinghurst takes his gay daddy and places him consistently, you know, in the kitchen all the time. His lover says, you know, he feeds me and he feeds me and he feeds me and he cooks. So part of that comfort with subsuming absorption on the traditionally feminine um, role or position in the kitchen, that's part of the definition of queer patriarchy. So, yes, I guess I just re-inscribed the binary, but I was really honestly trying to destroy it. And that kind of act of, you know, destruction through an attempt, I, I guess, to avoid the reinscription is where the, where the book ends. And, I mean, we've touched on um, the discussion of uh, trans fathers and trans fatherhood already, but the, the other thing to bring up about that code as the book is, is the inclusion or, or the move towards contemporary media texts mm-hmm. um, in, in comparison to... Uh, to the kind of uh, the literary focus earlier in the book, and I'm, I'm interested in sort of what the motivation was. There is that you know something that you're going to kind of move on um, in future work, or you know was it to do with contrasting media texts with literary texts, or was it just because they were quite interesting um, stories? So you know you talk about the L word and stuff like that. Well, I think that it's. Uh to throw it to relief to emphasize the relevance um, of this kind of a project to today, which is why I started using pop culture in an attempt to sort of say, oh, look, you know, Trollope did this, but it's still going on and the concerns are the same. And that's something that everybody's watching on TV. So as you do, think about it. Think about how um, masculinity is changing and evolving and transitioning. And it's not something I'm pursuing um, in my current project at all, but I thought that drawing, and I have some, you know, some pop cultural in the Forster Hollinghurst um, chapter, so, you know, drawing this connection between, say, Forster's fantasy of um, all-male fatherhood all the way through to this little documentary on the Logo channel, which is a contemporary, you know, LGBT-themed uh, channel in the United States. It's to say, well, look, this has been going on for some time, and it's still relevant now. And I think as we move on, it's becoming more and more relevant. So just um, connecting the past and the future, I would say, in a productive way. And I think when people, you know, people respond well to pop culture, and that might be a good way to uh, demonstrate the applicability of those ideas to today. I mean, it always seems a bit uh, sort of unfair to ask an author, uh, when they've just finished uh, a major project um, and, and produced a book, what, what else they're working on or, or what's next. But um, but is is there something completely different you're working on or are you um, trying to tease out more of the themes um, from from the book? Is there, a, you know, a kind of another stage in the in the kind of um, the process of querying patriarchy or, or are you onto something just completely different? Well, I have side projects in masculinity studies, but um, my current project is actually not, interestingly enough, not heavily um, involved with gender studies, not particularly sharply focused on gender studies. I'm working on a project exploring the relationship between um, fantasyical literature, Anglo-American fantasyical literature, to Lacanian ethics of psychoanalysis. So I'm exploring... um, the artistic side of it, kind of the relationship between modernism and realism, and also um, trying to look at some social relevance of this relationship. So, for instance, um, Lacanian service of the goods and Oscar Wilde's ideas on charity. So, the ways in which Pondesiaco writers, particularly Wilde, anticipate some of the um, Seminar 7 ideas is what's been preoccupying me ever since I finished, you know, 
that other one. And are you conceiving of this as a, as a new book or a series of papers? Or uh, Well, I have a couple of papers done, and I'm hoping that eventually they will collide, collapse into a book. Great. I look forward to reading. Thank you. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien, and I was talking to Helena Gerfinkel, Associate Professor of English at Southern Illinois University, about her new book, Outlaw Fathers in Victorian and Modern British Literature, Queering Patriarchy.